Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, uh, the No Shave November ended, but I have not taken the beard off. And the lovely Joanne's like, at least trim it. But I said, no, I'm going to keep it this way to at least the end of December. It's Christmas time. It comes in gray. The mustache is reddish blonde. The beard's gray. And I told her, I said, you know what? I can't trim it because I want to go for the Mandy Patinkin and Homeland look or the Richard Drivers and Jaws look. And if I trim it, I'll have the Bob Balaban or Steven Spielberg look. So my beard's here. So when you look at the website and see the pictures, you'll see my beard. But anyway, we have a great show today. And I got to tell you, I, uh, my guest today is uh, Steve Hofstetter. How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing well. I got to tell you, I, I saw a thing on Facebook and I before you came on and uh, you're a Rangers fan. Now, I, 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 saw, I saw you at the game and my friend Michael Platt, who's a comedy writer, me and him talk because I'm a big Flyers game. Yeah. And I was sitting there going, you know, me and Michael were going back and forth, and it was like a week later is when you guys kicked our ass two games in a row, yeah. back to back. But I was sitting there going, man, I go, and it wasn't people, just, you know, it wasn't like he, was, he has a picture of him at the, you know, like a selfie at the game. He's on the Jumbotron, and I'm going, holy crap, I have a, Raider, a, a Rangers fan coming in, but that's a, you're, you're a big hockey fan. Uh, I am. I'm. I'm not as big as I was. I'm not as big as a sports fan as I was in general, just because I, you know, working nights, you can't really keep up with games. But I, you know, I got to go. So I got to go to the Ranger game. I was like, I was a guest of the Garden, and you know, I got to eat with the owners, but like in the owners box beforehand, and like you know, Dolan was in the row in front of me, and I mean, it was it was crazy. But the craziest part was when they they came over. It's about you know. Uh, I don't know, a couple of minutes left in the first period, and they come over with a camera, like beeline straight for me. And I am not used to, I understand I have a TV show, but I still don't have, you know what I mean? Like right. I'm not. It's, it's, yeah, you sit there and go, wait a second. It's not like, I'm not, you know, like, I'm not like Ron Duguay coming into the yeah, garden. I'm, I'm just, yeah, I'm just hanging out. And so they, they came over, and I was there with my brother. And, you know, they were not only did they come and, you know, have me a little give a little wave and which, by the way, that five seconds takes three minutes. OK, like the just the idea of like, because after you wave and you point to your jersey and then I'm like and the camera's still on me, I don't know what to do now. Do I do I put a number one finger up? Do I like what do I do now? But they they put me on with a nice little Chiron and then they also ran one of the promo videos we had done for laughs on the screen. So I got a joke on screen during the game at, at the garden. And I've still got a bunch of fan, uh, a bunch of friends in New York who are Ranger fans. And so people at the game start texting me and like, what the hell, man, what's going on? And I think it was because it was Thanksgiving weekend and all the real celebrities weren't at the game. You know, like I think it was, right. they, they told me they were like, yeah, at our last game, you know, John Oliver was here and usually Matt Harvey comes by and a bunch of the Mets come by a lot. And I'm just sitting there being like, well, thank God they weren't here because now I got to be on the Jumbotron. But that's awesome. <laughs> now, 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 you're from Queens. Yeah. So now you said you're a big baseball fan. Are yeah. you a Mets or a Yankees fan? A huge Mets fan. Okay. So once again, I'm I love pain. Fan. Love pain. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I always, I, I remember as a kid watching them and the Mets are so good. I remember, I mean, I remember the crane pool days before you. Yeah. All, I remember all those days and, um. I was always a Phillies fan. And it's just the Mets are one of those teams. And I think your GM gave Ruben Amaro a disease because the, the, the Phillies just re-signed players that are so old. And well, do you have any idea how many diseases we got from you guys with Juan Samuel yeah. <laughs> and all the, all the garbage we got back then? I think, you know, the Mets and the Phillies, it wasn't till recent, even though New York and Philly are 90 minutes from each other or, you know, with traffic, you know, 45 hours. But we never really were rivals. We weren't rivals because we weren't good at the same time. Right. The only time I think we became rivals is when Jimmy Rollins said something a few years ago. Yes. Uh, it was when you guys were ahead and he said, we'll beat it or whatever. And well, and Pat Burrell was like the Mets killer. He yeah, was, like yeah. He, he was, he was a Phillies killer too. So <laughs> eventually, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so you grew up as a kid now, you know, being born mm -hmm. in Queens, now you love sports, I'm guessing. As a kid. Yes. Okay. So you're watching it now. Me, when I was, I loved sports when I was a kid and you know, and I also, I went to a career in stand up. I was 88 to 95. Yeah. And. But for me, years. What's that? That's fun. That's a fun time. Yeah, to be it was a great time. God, it was nuts, but I got out of business. But yeah. uh, now I'm back in. But for me as a kid, though, I never thought of getting into comedy. I always wanted to be a sports announcer. Was that something that you went through? Or, I mean, because I started I think it's a parallel. I started as a sports writer, actually. Okay. Uh, I started as a sports writer. I did color commentary for my college radio station. Okay, but I'm saying as a kid. What, yeah. What, did you want to get into sports? Was that your passion? Well, no. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That was what I thought I was going to be. Okay. And it's what I actually started as, where. Well, my first passion was like, I'm going to play baseball. And then it turned out I couldn't. Right. So I was like, well, what else am I going to do? So, yeah, I just wanted to be around sports. And actually, one of my favorite moments in my career 
any sort of career was I was 20 years old. I was a beat writer for the New York Yankees. And man, do I have some behind the scenes stories there. But uh, my favorite moment was I was a big fan of Cone. You know, Dave Cone, when he was on the Mets, was my guy. He was, you know, he was my favorite pitcher and I wanted to pitch. And so I was having this conversation with uh, Randy Choate, who was a reliever for the Yankees at that time. And he was one of the only two people in the locker room under 30, aside from me. So, you know, it was him, Jeter, and like a team that was dying. So still winning a World Series, but slow, you know, but on Medicaid. So uh, I'm talking to Choate and he says, do you think it's weird that all your friends want your job? I said, do you think it's weird that I want yours? He's like, yeah, you don't want my job. I go, yeah, I used to be a reliever. That's what I did. And he goes, well, I want to be a starter. I was like, well, then whose job do you want? And he's like, well, you know, I really look up to Cone. I think he's great. So I get this idea to write a column where I find out what Cone wanted to do when he was a kid. Policeman, firefighter, whatever. Then find one of them in the stands who wants to be a sports writer, have a neat little circle. So I go over to Cone and I say, what did you want to be when you grew up? And he said, I wanted to be a sports writer. It's like, wait, you want to what? And he's like, yeah. And he goes on this whole thing about how I grew up reading the Kansas City Star. And my favorite moment, he just looks at me and he goes, deep down, I'm just a frustrated writer. I was like, this is the See, great. See, that's, that's is, crazy. This is uh, wonderful. Well, they always say it. It's like anything. Everyone wants to do something else. It's like, yeah. even if you get a certain acclimate of success, everyone wants to do it. It's like, if you say, oh, you know, you're a rock star, I want to act. If you're an actor, oh, I want to be a yeah. comic. And it's just, I think it's just that you... Something that you're, you're successful at usually comes easy. I mean, not not the breaks, but it, it's, yeah. your, it's your God-given talent. So, you know, you do comedy. I've done comedy. It's, it's We knew how to do that. Yeah. And, but there's always something that we always wanted to be athlete because we couldn't play good sports. Well, I, I think what was amazing about that to me, what really stood out was the idea that, like, when you expect, the reason I expected him to say a firefighter or a cop or something like that is I didn't expect him to say a vocation like writing. I didn't expect artists to come out of the mouth of a, of a baseball player, you know, and, and it was it was my fault for having that stereotype. I expected to be like, what would you do if you weren't a baseball player? Eh, I'd probably be selling tires in the winter. You know, like that's what I expected. Right. And and I just loved how, and I think that's part of what drew me to Cone in the first place is he was a cerebral pitcher. And so, you know, but I didn't, I didn't know quite how cerebral until I got to talk to him. Well, look at Bernie Williams. I mean, Bernie Williams is an yeah. amazing classical guitarist. And he, he was. I used to sit next to his locker and just listen to him play. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you sit there and go, wait a second. You know, it's like, and even Barry Zito was a great, I mean, it's good. Yeah. And it's just funny because you think these guys, we always, we always put them up on a pedestal, but they, they have different lives. Like, you know, they, yeah. I know they have to train, but it's like anything. If you're a comic, you're writing this, but you want to do other stuff. I mean, a ton of comics golf when they're in yeah. the I mean, it's just, it's just what happens. So, so as a kid, you decided you wanted to be a sports writer. Yes. As, I absolutely wanted to be a sports writer. And you writer went to Columbia. Yeah, I went there. I was so I was a, a voice of the Columbia Lions men's basketball team. I uh, signed off my last broadcast by calling for our coach to be fired, and he was uh, not having to do with me. He was fired for the same reasons I wanted him to, which is that he had no plans for double teaming our best player. But uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I got to you know just play around on the radio a lot and learn a great deal, and you know be loud and annoying with my opinions, and then that evolved into stand-up yeah so well you're right you're right and then you go from that you start writing you're writing the beat for the yankees you're, mm-hmm. tw- you're 20 years old okay. youngest beat writer in the country now at what point did you sit there and go i want to keep beat writing or at what point did comedy come in your mind i mean as a kid were you a fan of comedy or were you just you, or no i was a huge fan i never intended to be a comic there are a lot of comics i know who are like this was my dream i'm like no i stumbled into this i loved comedy i watched the show that got me into it was comic strip live which is, it's such an amazing full circle thing because hosted that was... By, hosted by Wayne Cotter. Wayne Cotter. He's he, from, he, from uh, my area. He was host, It was actually hosted by a couple people, but I love that you brought up Wayne Cotter because those were the years that I was into it. Okay. So, uh, yeah, hosted by Wayne Cotter, live from the Sunset Strip, Laugh Factory. And what's amazing about that is, you know, 20 years later, it was the last true stand-up comedy show on broadcast television without a contest, without a house, just showing what's comedy like at a club. And it was 20 years go go in between. And then the next one is on Fox on the same channel. The premiere party is at the Laugh Factory, and it was my show. Which is, so, yeah, and you're right, because after that, it was all A&E, uh, you know, because back then, back then, you had all yeah. the Carolines. There was a lot on cable. There was right. a great deal on cable, but, but I'm, I'm, broadcast stopped showing stand-up. Yeah, I remember the comic strip live. I remember watching that, and uh, I remember Judd Apatow was on it. A bunch of people were on it. Uh, yeah. Dino Stamopoulos, uh, my really good friend Jeff Martyr was on it. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was, a, it was a show, and we watched it. And so you watched that, and you just loved it. 
I absolutely loved it. My brother and I would recite it. My sister too. Uh, we, you know, there are actually bits that I would love to go back and watch because I remember the bit and I don't know who the comic was because I was too young. And so I would love to, you know, kind of find out whose bit I've been reciting all these years. Right. So, uh, yeah, so I got really into it. And when I was a freshman in college, I started doing improv actually when I was 13 to impress a girl who, in, was, who was not impressed. In just like the neighborhood or did you High go school. to a class? We had uh, my, so my school started at seventh grade. So it was seventh okay. through 12th. And uh, I started doing improv there when I was in eighth grade just because there was this cute girl who was like, you should join the improv club with me. And I was like, I have no spine. I do what you say. And then I did. And she quit two weeks later and I was hooked. It was the first time I had gotten positive attention. And I never realized I always got in trouble for thinking quickly. And improv was the first place that I was like, oh, I, I should think quickly. Right. And so it was the first time that that skill was, was a positive for me. And so I did that through high school, uh, quit in college because I quickly learned the college improv group was not about who was good or funny, but about who their friends were. And so I, I didn't do that. And then I was walking around Times Square uh, just with a couple of friends. We just went to Times Square one day going, we'll find something to do. It's Times Square. And we got barked into Gladys's comedy night at Hamburger Harry's. And we we watched it, and they had an amateur night, and I started writing stuff for it. And I actually just kind of put that aside, and I didn't go on stage till three years later. So you sat there, and so you decided finally. What, what made you finally get the balls to go on stage by yourself? Because, I mean, it's a, like for me, when I started, yeah, I didn't know I got out of college. I didn't know where to go my mom said oh look the learning annex is having a comedy class yeah so i went and brian mckim i don't know if you know him brian mckim sure and tracy, tracy yeah and tracy skeen were my teachers oh and, what back then yeah they, jesus christ teaching a class yeah and so then i knew where to go it was a comedy factory out in philly yeah so it started but it, but then it took some coaxing it took that class but for you you had written it seemed you wanted to do it so what what was the turn of events that actually was it a girl again who made you get on stage just sit there and go it, you know what this girl see me do that's what i'm gonna do is that what it, happened? it was every girl no it was uh what ended up happening so i kind of sat there on it for three years and i didn't do anything with it and then my buddy's birthday party justin marks who's actually you know uh doing very very well as a as a screenwriter now uh very successful he it was his birthday party at this little dive bar by campus called the underground lounge and they have they had stand-up comedy in the back room and so while you know we're all kind of hanging out by the bar and then we're like yeah let's go into the show they kind of bark us into the show we go and afterward i i talked to the guy uh, who was running it and i said you know this is something i've thought of doing you know I, I write humor for the newspaper and i have all this stuff that i've been doing and you know like any wide-eyed kid is like i could do this and then he basically says he offers to charge me for lessons and tutor me and i said okay thinking like yeah i'll go do this once and so i took the big old change jar i had been saving up and i took it to a coin star and I got ninety dollars, and I paid him for three lessons at thirty bucks a piece, and and he put me on a show, and that's that's how I got up. It was, I guess, uh, it was his desire for money that made me a comic. Now, were you uh, excited to get well, the first time? Were you nervous? Very excited, very very excited. Um, I over prepared for my first time, and so I was good. I was actually good on my first time. My second time, I was eh. But I made fun of how I wasn't doing well, and that got big laughs. So I was like, "Ah, I'm bomb-proof." I actually said those words out loud. I said, "I'm not. I I, I can't bomb because I I'm funny enough to just make fun of bombing." Third time I went up, I was wrong. Right. As it turns out, I'm quite capable of bombing. In fact, quite good at it. And so uh, I was awful my third time, and and that's when I think I started getting nervous. And then it wasn't until I started really feeling comfortable on stage that you know things started getting a little bit a little bit better. So you're kicking around New York. Yeah. Now were you also getting were you doing different writing gigs? No, I w I mean I, I occasionally I would get you know like freelance work for I did you know ESPN magazine I did a thing for Maxim briefly, uh, you know whatever I could do but it, they weren't paying bills and so what I did was I was making money producing shows not much but you know I was. Producing comedy shows. Yeah, barking people in, selling tickets for eight bucks, you know, splitting it with a partner, the guy who tutored me, uh, and making a little bit of money. We opened up a, you know, a bar show near uh, near NYU because we figured we had one by Columbia. We should, you know, do one by NYU. And so I was standing out there 
passing out flyers in nine degree weather. So I always find it funny when comedians complain about simple things where I'm just like, I wanted it enough that I stood out there in the winter in New York for two hours a night and handed out flyers to people who hated me two blocks from where I went to school, where pe- where I still knew people who had heard, oh, Steve's doing comedy, and they see me handing out flyers like I'm working for a dry cleaner. That's how badly I want it. So how badly did you do you want it? Um, but we, so yeah, we were doing that, and I wasn't making enough to get by, and so I came up with this idea to go on the road, and collegehumor.com, I was their original writer. And so some people knew who I was from that, and I, you know, was able to get a couple hundred bucks to perform for a fraternity and things like that. What were you writing for them? Were you writing sketches? Were you writing uh, funny little bits? Or it was any- before they had video, so okay. this was just text. I, I wrote this column called Observational Humor, which was... Uh, you know, an email forward that they would put up on their website. And it was just, you know, five little jokes a week about whatever topic. I called them, the book that ended up developing from it were, is called Student Body Shots. But it was basically Twitter before Twitter. It was one or two line, quick little, here's a funny observation about, and each week was a different thing. So it was, you know, one week was about, you know, going home for Thanksgiving in college. And one week, it was all about college stuff. You know, one week was about the dining hall and whatever it was. Uh, And so that got me a little bit of a following, enough to book a couple things on the road. I didn't even have a driver's license at the time. So a friend of mine who had kicked around a couple open mics, I said, look, I've got a couple of gigs. You've got a car. Why don't we put something together and go on the road? And we did. And our intent was just to break even. And we ended up making a decent amount of money because we, you know, slept in the car a lot. So saved everything we could. And that's how I became a, a professional comic. Well, how long were you doing comedy when you, when you went on this road? I mean, a year you, and a half. So, so it's, a, I mean, and now you've, you've been along, around for a while. So, you know, it's just so funny to think, yeah. well, actually that you could do that then. And I always say, and it's funny because you're like, you're in the middle. Like, I mean, as you're like, like the, there's all these new comics now who have all their social media. Yeah. You're the, the person like when the I- The podcast kids. Yeah. When I started, you know, there was no social media. When you started, it started getting, you, you could use the internet, but it wasn't like social media where like college room you knew you because there's a website it was when i started uh right around that same time like halfway through that year is when facebook started and i was one of the first on it i just because facebook started at the ivies and so as a with a columbia alumni address i was able to get on facebook christmas of uh 2004 it's crazy. It was ten years ago. It's so funny how it's just blown up so much. Yeah. So you're on the road. You're doing this. And how much time are you doing? Because I mean, you've already an been hour. But yeah. But I mean, I mean, when you look back now, I mean, how many? How much was twelve minutes was really good? I mean, when you think, what? Was, I don't think any of it was really good. Okay. But when I when I look back, the second gig I ever did was a half hour, and I killed. And I want to look back at, uh, you know, I'm not talking about the uh, or the second, you know, road gig, whatever. When I look back at that, I I want to sit there and just go. What what did I say? You know, what did they find funny? Was I just relatable to college students and that's why I was able to get laughs? And I think it's something where I used to write a new 10 minutes for each show. I would say, okay, here's what I want to talk about today. And I would sit there and I would write. And some of the shows I remember, I did a thing at Lehigh that didn't do very well. Uh, you know, I did, it, it would depend on which I wrote and which I used. And then finally I started actually working on jokes and working on bits and coming up with something. But my first album is from my first year and if you listen to it i'm embarrassed by most of it but i am freaking killing now how did you how did you decide what made you decide to record the album i mean because back then it wasn't like now like anyone can have it i mean you know it's like you see someone has done you know yeah. comedy for a year but i mean you were doing gigs but people would do eight minute sets and they go oh i'm gonna record an album which you know i would i would be doing guest spots at and like i said i could barely afford to eat and i was doing guest spots at clubs when i was passing through town and most of the time, people would come over to me and be like, hey, do you have an album we can buy? And I was like, well, no. So then I intended to do one, and I did one, I intended to do one at University of Maryland. I was like, I'm doing a, a Greek life show at University of Maryland where there are going to be 800 students there. What a place to record an album. It's going to kill. This I, is going to be great. Your mind, like, wait, you don't think there are 800 college kids who are Greek, you know, yeah. so you know it's... Well, it's, it wasn't just that what really made it difficult, aside from the fact that it was a mandatory event for Greeks, so half the people didn't want to be there. But it was also, uh, it was a, like, they did this tie into a DUI charity, and they had a woman whose brother was killed by a drunk driver come up and speak before the show. She starts crying, 
and then she just goes i'm so sorry you know what let's get the comedy show started and then boom now we got to go up so it was the worst situation for comedy it was a gym with all the lights up i mean it was absolutely awful so i was sitting there going well maybe i won't record an album and then a couple months later i was playing grand valley state university which i had never heard of before and i get there and there are 500 there are 600 students in 550 seats and the energy in the room was absolutely electric. And I just had a camera that I threw on in the back of the room. And I ended up taking the audio from that camera, and it was my first album. Now, I'm embarrassed by that album, very embarrassed by it. There are 15 to 20 minutes on that album where I'm like, I could make those good if I did them now. Like, there were seeds of good thoughts. But for the most part, you know, 15 minutes of it is crowd work, which is something I still do. But it was... It was, again, the ability to think quickly, which is what always got me in trouble as a kid, is what got me an album as a comic who had been doing it for a year. But I think that's, I think that's, I mean, that's great. So, so you're on the road, you're doing this, you know, mm-hmm. and you're still new in the business. So now... As a you, baby. So now what's your, now, what do you do after you, I mean, the road, you know, the way you're going on the road isn't like the way, you know, like when you go on the road where you get a hotel and stuff, you're sleeping in no. your car, stuff like that. Yeah. So when do you say, hey man, you know, I got to... I don't. I don't want to sleep in my car anymore. I got to sit there. What, what steps do you take next to enhance your career and further your career? Well, I kept. Uh, I I kept doing guest spots at clubs, and so some of them would say, "Yeah, we'd love to have you back as a feature." I kind of skipped the host stage of my career. Some of them would say, "We'd love to have you back as a feature," and some of them would not call me back. But I was always someone who I worked hard quickly. So on one hand, you go, "Okay, you've been doing this only a year." But the first three months I was a comic, I got on stage a hundred times. You know, I was not someone who would sit and wait around for a gig. And so I had more experience than someone who hasn't been doing it much. You know, my one year was equivalent to most people's three, just because I was getting on stage more, because I was producing stuff. I wasn't waiting around. So the next step, I mean, it was just trying to do more of what I was doing and do it better. And I remember the moment, the first moment I felt that my career was actually moving, was when I was performing at a college and I was offered to stay in the guest room of the fraternity that was hosting me. And I remember thinking, I'm just so tired. I just want to get a room by myself. And I spent $35 on a motel room. <laughs> and I remember thinking, man, I made it. <laughs> just buying this That's so this funny. disgusting rat infested gross side of the road you know flashing neon $35 or $34.99 believe me there used to be a guy named Keith Gisser yeah and he would do Gisser runs through Ohio Pennsylvania Maryland and those are the hotels you would stay in with. Like me and this guy used to go co-headline shows. Yeah. And you pull up and it's like you're in a small town. And then the yeah. hotel's like home of the big bed. And you check in and you see like some boss pull up with his Mercedes who's sleeping with his secretary. Sure. Then he leaves and you're going, I think we're the only people staying here overnight. But yeah. it was that acknowledgement. When, I mean, because I was 23, 24 when I went on the road. And it was, it's just a thing. Like you said, you, you made it. Because, you know, you're doing comedy and you're, you're sleeping in a hotel you're not in your yeah. car and that's the thing I think that's the innocence I think and it's for you as you said also you never went through the hosting well that's because you were always out on the road like in my yeah. area in Philadelphia you hosted but you would never go on the road as a host you could become a feature so I think it's great because you, you bypassed that because you just said screw it I'm going to get out on the road well and I also bypassed the whole open mic stage because I, you know I was like I'm just going to produce my own thing and you know in New York there are three ways to start there's uh barking bringing an open mic and this has been true for the last 15 years I don't know you know how long No cuz for it me goes. but back but for me it was like there, no there's no self-produced shows when I was doing comedy yeah. so that, that's something new you're on the in the forefront of that Well the so the barking was how I started which was you know hand out flyers in exchange for 5 minutes of stage time the bringing was, you know, you get 20 friends to come see you, you get a five minute spot on a show with a bunch of other bringers, or there's the open mic where you go for no one to listen to you. And so, and in New York, you usually have to pay five bucks. So I was like, you know what? In open mic, you're paying for your stage time. In bringing, your friends are paying for your stage time. In barking, you're working for your stage time. So that's the one that appealed to me. And you know, every every moment, the reason why I think that hotel thing stands out to me, and I also remember when I upgraded to the Econo Lodge from the motel, and I remember upgrading to the Holiday Inn from the Econo Lodge, and like each little step stood out to me because you have to remember the moments. You have to appreciate the moments 
or you're not going to enjoy anything. You're just going to you're going to be worried about like what's next. If you're sitting there in the Econolodge going, when am I going to get into the Ritz? You're, you're going to kill yourself. But if you're sitting in the Econolodge going, damn, I made it to the Econolodge. And then another year later, be like, yeah, best Western. You know, it's just slowly, and that's what it also, feels good. That's like the wrong you go up on comedy. You know, yeah. when, when you're a feature, I'm going to be honest, feature is the best spot there is because the crowd's set up for you. Yeah. You go up and you have to do, th- you don't have to deal with checks. You don't have to deal with the closing. They're not too drunk you, yet. Yeah. And you appreciate it. And that's the thing. You always, I always appreciated being the feature. Then I would, I would headline D, D clubs. But the thing is, I was like, God, you know what? I would rather go back and feature a, a, a nicer club yeah. <laughs> than headline the D club. Cause you sit there and you go, wait a second. But I always appreciated that feature spot. I appreciated when it was an, an MC. Yeah. And for you, it's like, so you appreciated staying in the nicer the, cause you knew the crap, you knew your car and now you're sitting yeah. there going, well, you know, in just this time I got to this. So maybe in this time I can get there. Yeah. And, and you know, don't get, don't get me wrong. Like we, it's not like we were, you know, sleeping in the car every day and living out of there. It's just that sometimes we couldn't find a place to stay and so, you know, he would drive and I would just take a nap and, you know, that's how we would work it. But the, we had, oh, we had such a system. We would perform anywhere we could just to get better, but also to find a place to stay because we would perform. Someone would come up to us after the show wanting to hang out. We'd hang out with them eventually. Hey, you know, where are you staying? Ah, oh, you know, this friend of mine from college lives around here, but she hasn't called back. So probably with her when she calls back. And the reason I would say it that way, saying she shows that you're not a threat because you got a female friend who's willing to let you stay with her. That seems right. nice, you know, and then like, oh yeah, I'm staying with her. Don't worry about it. Then two hours go by. They're like, well, your friend hasn't called you. I'm like, I know she's such a flake. It's so annoying. You want to crash with us? And so then we would. And most of the time they'd make us breakfast. A couple times I'd hook up. Like it was just this how to survive on the road as a poor, not so great comic. And, and we did it all year. There was one time where we actually played poker for a place to stay because we were supposed to stay with, uh, with a chapter of my fraternity, but we got stuck in traffic. We didn't get there till 530 in the morning. Everyone's asleep. No one's coming to the door. We drive by another fraternity house that that had big picture windows, and they're playing poker. So we knock on the door. Hey, we're traveling comics. We're supposed to stay at the SIGAP house. They're all asleep. You guys are playing poker. I love poker. Is it cool if I play while I'm waiting for them to wake up? Yeah, sure, no problem. So they let me play. My buddy takes a nap on the couch. Uh, I end up winning like fifty bucks. It was that's and that's how that's how we survived. See, it's good. You had the little, the little ten. That's like the old school, the old school uh, yeah, comedy. The hustle. So you're hustling, you're hustling. So now, when do you start? You know, when do you start getting into the road? When do you start breaking into the clubs? Because you're doing the colleges, you're still new. Yeah. And I'm sure the clubs coming in and see you. But the old thing was the clubs back then. There was thousands of features, and for someone new, sometimes it's harder to break in. I, you know, I broke into the, you know, the D rooms as you say first, and so, and I, I was able to headline the D rooms pretty quickly. Because they would have, you know, I'm a writer. And so I came in, it wasn't refined, but I would have an hour. It just, you know, needed to be worked on. And so, you know, then they've got these guys who, who as a feature, and, you know, I don't say this to blow smoke. This is honestly what happened within two years of being a comic who couldn't follow me. And it was because I didn't always hit hard. But when I did, I was tough to follow. Because I get very political and very opinionated. And so when they're with me, they're rooting for me. And when they're not with me, oh, they hate me. <laughs> but I, but either way, you know, I either would, way, it's hard. It's either way, it's hard to be followed because one, they're following this big killer thing. The other yeah. thing, they're digging themselves out of a ditch. So they're going the crowd. They're going okay. The first five minutes, they got to prove to these exactly. people that comedy is not bad. Yeah, and that's what happens. So I think that makes sense because same thing. That's with Bill Hicks. You know, and, yeah. If they hated him, they left. If they loved him, they stayed. And he was he was my hero. My aspiration was always to be like Bill Hicks if he didn't hate the crowd. You know, that was that was what I wanted. Good aspiration. To be. And so. And because of that, and not only that, but I'm playing these gigs where, you know, they're paying the headliner 125 bucks. So they're not going to get a good headliner. So, you know, they're just happy to have someone who will take the gig who can fill the time. And so I started, you know, I started getting work that way. And then occasionally, you know, I would play a club, have a great guest set, and the owner would see something in me, whatever that was. They would say, you know, this kid's got a future. You know, this kid's 23 years old and he's already doing this. Why don't I make an investment now? And so the first couple clubs were, you know, the Funny Farm in Atlanta, which is now gone, um, the uh, Mark Ridley's in Detroit, 
and uh, and uh, Comedy Caravan in Louisville, which is now the Laughing Derby, and I'm one of the owners of it. But I, and that's where that's kind of where it started. Where you know I I just slowly would come in do guest sets, and they would you know eventually be like, yeah, we'll give you a week, we'll give you a try, and it would go well. And the Caravan's the first club to headline me. And the way that happened was, uh, I was working with uh, Kevin Downey, who's a friend of mine, and I love him. I think he's so funny. And the Kevin Downey is he out of Philly? Uh, no, he may have been originally, but he's he's a New York guy. At least I know him as a Kevin New York Downey guy. Jr. Yeah. Okay, my friend's actually right now in Tahoe with him. Oh yeah, at, at Catch. Yeah, my friend uh, Eric Potts. He's a ex retired yeah. cop who's doing comedy. Just he drove across country because he's you know he's just why not you know yeah. I'm a, I have a pension I'm you know yeah he's at, at okay he's with Kevin Downey at uh, Catch and yeah Kevin Kevin's great uh, he's he's just got such a goofy act it's awesome and so I was working with him and I just you know I came out swinging and it wasn't to make his life more difficult it was because I wanted to prove myself as a headliner and I wanted to do my job. And I did really, really well to the point where, uh, you know, where after one of the, after one of my sets, you know, Kevin shakes my hand, gives me a big smile and, uh, you know, and tells me to go F myself. And so, uh, I said to the owner at the time, Tom Sobel, I said, you know, I can't come back here as a feature anymore. And it was just this moment where I'm like, I'm going to put my cards on the table and hope it works. And he goes, yeah, I know. And gave me headline week and that's how it works now where were you living at this time uh i was living in new york okay but so, you were just you were on the road a lot though yeah i if i could go back and and change it i would have moved to the midwest immediately because even when i didn't have a car it's just i was paying well in, in new york for the most part I, I actually just you know crashed at my mom's place when i was home and then i was paying some rent you know i had a place that i was never at and then i moved to i moved to la uh, halfway through 04 to try to shake it up, try to, you know, do something different. And I enjoyed LA. Um, I, you know what? I guess I was probably living in LA when that happened. And so then I wouldn't be home for two and a half months at a time because I couldn't afford to be in LA. And what I've learned now, and I tell this to comics all the time is go somewhere to start and get good. Move to New York to get great, move to LA to get famous, but you cannot skip a step. Right. And if you try to skip a step, it's going to take you more time. Because, like, comics will come up to me after a show. This kid came up to me in Columbus, Ohio, you know, handed me a, without me asking for it, of course, handed me a, you know, self-burned DVD with marker on it. Because I did the sign it, okay. of a professional. I, I actually, this is no lie. I did a yeah. show a while back because when I was, I was by coastal for a while until my, before my girlfriend moved out here. So even though I was out of the business for a long time, I was fooling yeah. around it out here, and I would go back to the clubs in the Philly area, you know, Andy Scarpati's clubs and uh, yeah. Comedy Works, and I would just I would do feature spots because you know they paid and it was fun. Yeah, clubs right in my my girlfriend's house, but I it was so funny. I saw a headliner, and he was selling burnt DVDs with the magic marker, and I'm thinking. Wait a second. You know, I had T-shirts because I from my yeah. radio show, and I mean, I was like, and I, I'm like, well, what would you rather buy? Like a nice T-shirt where I was yeah. like, sell for ten bucks because it's still a good profit. Or would you rather buy a CD with it written? And I'm thinking, no one's going to buy that. A hand burned yeah. CD costs eighty cents. A mass produced one costs a dollar. Right. It's just, so it, 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 just and put it, it in. Was, and... It was it was in like the the plastic folder. I'm thinking you have yeah. to you have to at one point have some at least some self value where you're going to sit there and, and put a cd together so, yeah so this kid gave you the cd so this kid gives me the dvd and he's like yeah i'm thinking about moving to new york uh and i just look at him i go don't and he's like well, well, why not i go you're not ready and he goes you don't know my act i'm like that's why you're not ready because i don't know your act and you're not ready to move to new york if i if i have never heard your name before if if my friends don't know you like how is it that you're suddenly going to move to the biggest pond there is until you are the guy in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm going to call him Wayne, whatever. Uh, I don't actually remember his real name. But, you know, until when when Dave Chappelle is playing a theater in Wayne, or in a theater in Columbus, they need to say, get Wayne to open. Right. Once you're that guy, that's when you move. That is when you move. You do not move until you're that guy. So, so going back, you're on the road a lot. Yeah. Now, so... What do you? At what point do you sit there and go, okay, this is where I want to take my career? Do you sit there and go, I? I just Have I ever said that? I don't think I've ever I mean, said that. But the road, though, the road. Yeah. I mean, I, I always think the road's for for the young man, 
Yeah. I mean, let's get real. You know, you know, road. I mean, when I was when I was single and you get like booked at this comic strip in Fort Lauderdale, it was a two week gig, and you know, I was twenty four and you drink all night oh when you're single and, and drinking the and road is amazing yeah and, but the thing is as you get older you go ah you know you can't really eat healthy <laughs> you can't you know you yeah well you sit there and go okay i hope the hotel has a gym another another one of those watershed moments for me was uh i was doing a run for comedy express for doug and dana up in uh up in minnesota you know north dakota minnesota run and the last weekend of the run is this great club in st cloud it's uh, it's this one night. It's called uh, Rum Runners, and it's it's a lot of fun. And St. Cloud can be a bit of a party town, especially that strip of bars. And they put you in this, you know, comedy apartment that is over a bar where live music ends at four a.m. And at that point, I'm already engaged. I don't drink anymore, and it's one thirty in the morning, and I can't sleep. And that is when I said, I'm done. And I went and got my own hotel, and I, you know, I paid almost as much as the gig was paying and i just said i cannot treat myself like this anymore and part of part of what helped was you know getting engaged to a woman who's very good at business and her able to sit me down and say let's look at the difference between gross and net and when you take a gig that is a higher gross but the same net that's dumb right you know and there are ways to make the same net with less work. And so we kind of looked over my schedule and we looked over what gigs were doing well and, and what gigs weren't. And uh, I kind of started looking at it differently. And then that dovetailed with around the same time that I was getting a following and I was getting a reach. And so I started playing rock venues where I could pocket the door. And so for one night, I was making more than what I would have made for a week at a club. Now, how did you get, I know you got a huge YouTube following. Yeah. Now, how did that come up? Um, do you know? Do you know? Have any idea? Because that's the thing about viral videos. Yeah. Some you sit there and go, everyone should watch that. Some you sit there and go, no one's watching that. Do you have, and no one knows? Do you have any idea how it happened? I mean, was it hard work? I, mean, I have an idea, sit- but it wasn't. I can't take credit for it. Uh, it was. It was just one of these things. So I never wanted to put up my material on YouTube until I was done with a joke. And I wasn't telling anymore because the last thing I wanted, I hate when like one person stays over for the late show when they're like, oh, that was so good. I'm going to watch it again. I'm like, damn it. It's all the same. Stop it. Mm -hmm. You know, now I got to have that in my head the whole time that someone's heard this already. And so I never put up my material. I would put up outtakes. And I used to do these all ad lib shows where it goes back to the thinking on my feet thing where I would do it started at the caravan. Uh, where people would say, hey, I enjoyed the show. I'm going to come back Saturday. And I'm like, well, that's the same show. Don't come back Saturday. And so I got this idea for Sunday night because the Sundays at Caravan were always dead. And I was like, you know what? And it was eight shows in a week. And then the last one sucks. That's terrible. So I asked I asked Tom, uh, who owned it, and I said, can I give out free tickets to the Sunday show all week? And then I'll do the Sunday show completely ad lib. And he was like, yeah, sure. And so I made it kind of this game. And one of my albums is actually one of those shows because it became so popular in Louisville that those would sell out before the Saturday. And so it became something I would do on the road everywhere I went. And so I would have these little clips that, you know, from the outtakes. And then there was one in Madison where it was from a regular show. But this this idiot yelled out, I was telling a joke about going to Canada and how cold it was. And I mentioned the weather and he yells out, was it Celsius? And I went off on him for two minutes about how dumb that was to yell. Like, yes, it was Celsius, but I translated it to Fahrenheit for the American audience because no one knows what the hell you're talking about. And I just made fun of him for two minutes and I put the clip up and it just took off. And I remember being excited when it had like 30,000 views. It's over 3 million now. And I've got five different clips that have over a million. And I started noticing what people liked about me was A, thinking quick, and B, justice. People liked that I had the ability and the anger in me, you know, the the lack of patience to put people in their place. And that just struck a chord with people and it just took the hell off. So you, it's taken off. Now you're playing these rock venues. Yeah. So you're getting a name. You're getting a, a name across the country. Yeah. So now, now what do you do? Do you sit there and go, I want to keep doing comedy? Because then eventually now we'll talk about laughs in a little bit. Yeah. You had that. And then I know, you know, you got into the comedy club, buying the comedy, running a comedy club. 
we you're, you're on the road and you're just sitting there finally and, and you know, you have the, the your fiance now who's your wife behind yeah. you who has the business sense so she's saying grow up you know, I'll I'll look at these books you know don't yeah. don't be you're not going to you know Sheboygan for this I don't care if they're paying that yeah so so what year is this so I I think the the YouTube all that all started around 2009 2010 okay so you get a name and then, yeah and, and you're at the perfect time because social media is blowing through the roof Twitter's yeah. blowing through the roof Facebook's blowing through the roof I mean so and people can talk about hey watch this guy it's 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 great promotion yeah and it gets to be the point it, it's a weird place to be and it's one I'm still in even with a show on television it's still a place where like there are people who come up to me at airports thrilled that they got a chance to meet me and everyone they're with goes, who the hell was that? Right. <laughs> so it's, it's such a weird place to be. But so, so you're doing this. So now where yeah. do you take your career from that? This is 2010. Now do you sit there and do you, now do you move to LA? I mean, you were, well, I had intended to move back to LA January, 2010 and I met my wife summer of 09. And so that kind of delayed things. Um, you know, we ended up moving, uh, Christmas, 2012. And so, it was just one of these things where, you know, she had a really good job in New York. We weren't just going to pick up and move because of that. And, you know, sometimes you fall in love and your plans change. But it was something I was interested in because I started getting this, you know, there's been a lot of let's keep track of him on me since 2006. You know, uh, 2008 is when I did Ferguson. Uh, that same year, I did Comics Unleashed, and I did uh, an E! True Hollywood story, and I did uh, Nesson's Comedy All-Stars, and all these little things. What E! True Hollywood story? I was on Clay Aiken's E! True Hollywood story, and that happened... Yeah, what the hell? It's, just it's, it's, because I'm a jackass. Uh, that happened because one of the researchers for that had come to see me at the Improv, and she enjoyed it, and so then she came to uh, Comics Unleashed. You know, I had posted I was going to be on it. She's like, oh, can I come? I'm like, yeah, sure. So she comes to Comics Unleashed. As one of my guests, I'm talking to her. I'm like, hey, what are you working on now? And she goes, oh, I'm doing research for Clay Aiken's E! True Hollywood Story. And it was right around the time where he came out. And just like a jerk, I just go, oh, and she, she said... Uh, she said, yeah, we just learned, actually, that he started as a, as a singing in a, in a choir, in a church choir. And so just like a jerk, I just go, oh, so he started off with hymns and never quite made it to hers. Right. And she just says, hey, do you want to say that on the show? I was like, what do you mean? Do I want, how? How would I say that? You're just going to cut to me? And she's like, no, come and be like a talking head. And she ran it by her boss. And I actually got five different jokes in the script and only two aired because of legal. <laughs> I had a, a couple that were more questionable. And in fact, that one didn't even make it to air. So that's okay. So you're getting this. You're getting the juice now. Yeah. So, but it's but it's like a little bit of juice. It's the kind of juice that, like, CBS has said. I've never done a project with CBS ever, but from 2006 on, they've allegedly been keeping track of me. I don't know to what. I'm pretty easy to keep track of, uh, and it's that's one of those things that a lot of networks do where they don't want to be the first one to greenlight something, and so I started setting up general meetings with networks. You know, I had, you know, rep that worked for me and he would just, you know, send out emails, be like, hey, do you want to meet Steve? Here's what he's done. You want to take a meeting? And I just kind of kept in touch with people. And that's really what led to things because so, you know, now I've got this big YouTube following and I run a bunch of comedy festivals and I own a couple clubs and, you know, and it's one of these things where people are starting to notice that something's happening, whatever that something is. At what point did you decide to start owning clubs? Uh, that was another one that was a bit of an accident. Uh, that was something where at the end of every week I would play a club, I would find myself in the manager or owner's office teaching them how to use MySpace or whatever the technology was at the time. And eventually, one of them said, can we pay you to tell us how to do this? I said, sure. And that was actually something that, you know, that my wife helped with where she said, you're doing very well with this business. Can you try to expand it? So I messaged a bunch of club owners and I said, here's something I'm doing. Would you like help? And a few of them hired me on a consulting fee. And one of them uh, was Marshall Childs at uh, Laughing Skull in Atlanta. And the two of us created the Laughing Skull Festival. And then we basically said, hey, do you want to open a club together? We should open a club. We should buy a club. We actually looked at the caravan um, and uh, the new owner had wanted too much for it. And that same week, Tom Simmons, who I love as a comic and also as a person, uh, he knew that we were looking and he played Morty's in Indianapolis, which was 
the bones of a wonderful club, but they didn't know how to run one. It was a comic who saved a club that went out of business. And he said, I've got a couple people for you guys to talk to. And he put us in touch, and we ended up uh, buying in at Morty's, and then that just kind of... So you're on Morty's? Uh, one of the owners, yeah. Okay. My friend, I think my my buddy Joe Matteris plays there. Yeah, yeah, I love Joe. We were from the same hometown. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. He's the same. He went to high school. He's three years younger than me. I was yeah, he's first, a Philly guy. Yeah, I was his first boss out of high school for a, oh, credit, wow. a credit marketing company. He yeah. Was, yeah. Matteris, uh, I know him from New York. Yeah, so, yes, yeah, so, it's so funny because I know he plays there a lot. So you're sitting there, so you're out here, you're getting mm -hmm. some juice, you, you bought the clubs, you buy the things. Yeah. Now, how does laughs come up now? Because you're sitting there and you're in LA, but are you still going on the road? Because it must be hard if you own a club in. Indianapolis and, and in now but I have good people who live there so so you have people run it so you're just you're the yeah other, the owners. other owners I'm kind of the face of them but other owners live there and work there okay. and run it and so you know I would do stuff like booking and marketing and things like that but you know I was just I was the public face of them just because I had the most notoriety in my career but the way and you know and this is something that I you know a story that hopefully young comics can learn from so Stephen Brown, who's the executive vice president of Fox Television, uh, he and I kept in touch. I had a general, or I was going to set up a general, and then he just came and saw me at the Improv. He came to Laughing Skull Festival one year. When I moved back to L.A., I reached out to all the contacts I had out here, and I said, hey, you want to catch up? You want to have lunch? I had lunch with Stephen. Uh, you know, we got along well. Everything's, you know, great. Keep in touch. Six months later. Uh, and it's funny because it's not like, oh, he got something right after, six months after he moved. No, this is the second time I moved to LA. The first time I was here for three years and I got nothing. So it's not like you move and something immediately. But you were, you I, were I was also, ready this time. You were also on the road and getting a name for yourself. It wasn't just like you were some schmo walking in right. in six months. All of a sudden said, here's a silver platter like they used to do. Yeah. But so so you were here. You, you had a following already. Well, and this is even less of a silver platter. So I'm looking for any excuse I can to come off the road. As you said, it's a young man's game. I'm getting tired. I want to actually spend time with my wife. We got, you know, we got a dog at this point. Ended up, you know, now we have two. And so uh, Stephen emails me and says... You know, we're looking for a funny producer for Dish Nation. Uh, do you want to recommend anybody? And I said, you know, I'd actually like to throw my hat into the ring. I'd love to come off the road more. I had produced some shorts for, for Nick Mom. I had, you know, I had, I had a bunch of live production experience, you know, I mean, over a dozen comedy festivals at the time. And I said, yeah, I'd love to be considered. And a couple days later, they hired me. I lasted three weeks. The reason I only lasted three weeks was because I was funny but I wasn't into entertainment gossip, which is what the show is. I don't care what Kim Kardashian names her baby. I don't care. And so I didn't really fit in with what they needed. But that opened the door because Stephen liked my work. You know, yeah, I didn't fit, no problem. But he liked my work. And so a year later, uh, Jack Abernathy, who's the president and CEO of Fox Television, comes up with this idea for the show where he says... You know, there are comics, I, I can't go to YouTube without seeing a comic upload this great set and having 10 views. You know, everyone who comes into this office who I meet with has a YouTube channel with 40 views, no matter how great the content is. There are comics taping themselves at clubs daily. There are comics, there are clubs that tape every one of their comics. Can we put this together as a show? And so Steven said, I know somebody who could do it. And there were other people up for the job also who were better hosts, and there were people who were up for the job who were producers. But the fact that I could do both is what got me the gig. A lot of people think that Laughs is my show that I created it, and it's absolutely not true. Jack did. So, so you they bring you on, yeah, and so but you're going to produce it. But they yeah. they had the general idea as host and EP. Okay. Now there were a couple ideas that they had that I was just like, I know the stand up world, and this doesn't work. You can't have it all submissions because most comics, no matter how good they are don't own a camera capable of broadcast quality. Right. You know, most comics don't know a thing about lighting or sound or things like that. Like, we have to help the clubs put together showcases and, you know, give the clubs incentive to put together showcases so that the comics can go and get these tapes in, in, a, in a better environment. Now, on the show, there's very short clips. Yes, it is. It is the highlight reel of stand-up comedy. So that's what that's that's your focus. You don't want like because you know the old evening team improvs was the, the six-minute yeah. set. You know tonight you, you did Ferguson's a six-minute set. Yeah. So for you said is that I have a question I have is for that is is that because we know everyone now has such a damn short attention span? I mean, does that add into it? Because you know how people switch, it's, switch, switch. It's both. It is 
partly it's because they have a short attention span. Partly it's because it makes the show infinitely watchable. Um, one of the jokes I do at the live tapings is I say, comedy is so subjective. That's what I love about this show. Because if you love someone, you write their name down and you find out everything about them. And if you don't like someone, you wait. And then you like someone else. Right. Um, the other thing is, the so the premise of the show was to break new ground, was to give comedians their TV debut, was to not show people household names. And so when you're watching someone you don't know, you're not going to necessarily give them five minutes to get you. And so the idea is we're saying, look how funny these comics are. We're going to show you their best stuff. We're going to show you a minute of killer and then another minute of killer. And then by the time we do that, it's the commercial break. And you're like, where'd the show go? And so that was pretty much the original premise of the show. It was, you know, like I said, it's the highlight reel. It's the home runs, it's the slam dunks. And so many showcase shows have been done. Comedy has been done in this, you know, let's show four acts doing a couple minutes a piece and then a host doing a few minutes and that's our show. And I can tell you there have been over two dozen iterations of that on television. And this is new. So and that's why it that's why it worked. Now, where do you where do you how do you find your clubs? Like what how do you choose the clubs you want? Are there people you have a personal relationship with? I mean cuz I mean and that's fine cuz that's, that's yeah. like anything. It's always I mean if, like Mar I know I think you had one at Comedy Castle. So yeah. so of course you're, you're going to do it. Is that how it is? Like you say, "Okay, I want these clubs that I have a relationship with because well, one if it's your club, well, then you should tape it there cuz yeah. it's your club." I mean, let's get well, real. Well, the first couple were taped at you know, the first two places we taped were Morty's and Laughing Derby, and part of that was just because there was no barrier of entry. We didn't have to, you know, rent the space. We didn't have to worry. We could set up cameras wherever the hell we wanted because we were an unproven show that didn't exist yet. And so, you know, now every club in the country wants in. But when we first started, we had to ask. And so I asked favors of friends, but I also approached clubs I knew would be good for the show. So... Now, I'm a house guy at the Laugh Factory. Before the show, I wasn't. And I had approached Jamie, and I said, you know, your club is amazing. You know, you have great footage from here all the time. You know, you have an awesome club in Chicago. You have this club in LA. You have, you know, you have a presence in Vegas. You know, you, you have all these different markets. I would love to work with you. And through that conversation, we got to know each other, and then he liked me as a comic also, which is great. And, and the great thing about Jamie Masada is that he really treats his comics as family. And so anyone who looks at it now goes, oh, well, he went to the Laugh Factory because he's a house guy. I'm like, no, I'm a house guy because I went to the Laugh right. Factory. And so, uh, you know, and same thing with Pachanga, where we tape our raps now. I had an upcoming gig on their schedule. I actually was working there Thanksgiving weekend before the show all started. And... I was like, you know what? We want to tape somewhere near LA, but not in LA. And it's such a great club. Why don't I reach out? And, you know, Perrin, who runs the place, is a really smart guy. And he was like, so you're going to do a commercial for us every week? Yeah, I think we'll. Think That's we'll what I'm that. saying. Yeah, I mean, you'd be crazy not to tape because it is yeah. a commercial because it's in different markets. So you sit there and go, wow. You know, if you if you watch it, see someone, if you know someone in you yeah. know, Indianapolis, hey, do you, you ever been to Morty's? Oh, no, you can check it out. That's, that's a, thing, it's free advertising. The thing I love about the show is not only is it a commercial for the clubs that are on the show, it's a commercial for every club because marketing stand-up comedy is reminding people that it's an option. And so what this does, because you always say, what do you want to do tonight? Oh, I don't know. I guess we'll go to a movie. What do we go to dinner? And those are because those are the things that have been staples for, you know, in our culture for 50 years. But comedy clubs as a thing are only a couple decades old. So it's reminding people that this is something you can do. And so when someone watches laughs on a Saturday or Sunday night, they're going to sit there and they're going to go, hey, you know what? Why don't we go to a comedy club next weekend? And then it, it helps the comedy scene in general. So you're sitting there and it's originally was 12 episodes you got picked up? 13. Okay, so, so we got a 13 episode order, which wasn't guaranteed either. Okay. So it was one of these things like you have a 13 episode contract that could be canceled with a week's notice. I'm like, so I have a one episode right, contract? Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. So each episode you go, all right, now we have another episode contract. And then now you just got renewed. Yeah. So what they did first, they extended us for four episodes and then they decided to do a couple remixed episodes, which were basically, you know, as the show was on more, we started finding our voice. We started doing cooler things with the intros. We started, you know, using better shots. And so 
we're kind of remixing the original 13 slowly into new episodes with some new content. We've been finding ways to cut some of the clips a little shorter to give more comics a chance. And so uh, they ended up, we ended up with 19 episodes, and then we were like, and now we wait to see if we're canceled or not. And then they gave us 20 more. Now you do tweets. Is there tweets on your show? Yeah, so we feature tweets. We feature stand-up shots. We feature vines. You know, the idea is it is, it is quick funny. How do you get a tweet on there? I uh, so if someone hashtags with laughs TV as the hashtag, uh, and it's funny. We just reach out to them. We say we want to feature the tweet on it. Um, I forget what it pays, but you know, it pays a couple bucks. And the person records at home, records themselves saying the tweet because it'd be boring to just put the words on the screen. Right. Like CNN does that all the time, exactly. where they just put the words on the screen. It was like no one's gonna read this. I'm gonna send you because I always tweet. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm we, yeah send it, send I, it I, in. I tweet a lot of funny we, stuff. Yeah, we love that stuff. And so, although it's so funny because sometimes people are tweeting us and they're like, "Yeah, I'd love to get a joke on." And they tweet us, and it's usually it's like fifteen year old kids, and they just write the most like offensive, racist, horrific right. thing. And I'm like, you understand this broadcast television, right? Exactly. You understand this isn't like four of your buddies, um, but yeah. And and then they just read the tweet out loud, and we animate it, and you know we kind of put it all together, make it a production, and it's just a cool little thing. We have a few minutes left. Yeah. Um, so with the laughs going now, are you still going out on the road, or uh, do you, or are you done with the road and you're just concentrating in LA? I'll hit the road sometimes. You know, I'm in. Uh, I'm doing Hoosier Park in Anderson, Indiana, uh, this uh, this Saturday. Now, is that a club? Or are you playing a venue? Or uh, it's a venue. It's kind of more of a theater. Okay. Um, but they, you know, and so I'll do stuff. I can do Fridays and Saturdays because uh, we tape Thursdays, and most of the week is spent ramping up to it. Um, I have to do some of the road because I have to promote the show. And so, so much of, you know, I co-hosted Good Day DC when I did a show in DC and I went to New York and I, you know, and I was on Good Day New York and Fox and Friends and, you know, all the stuff that they have there. So I still have to do media tours, so I'll schedule work around it. But for the most part, you know, I'm here, I'm working the Laugh Factory a lot, I'm in Costa Mesa for New Year's, I'm, you know, places you can drive to and it's, it's nice. <laughs> now, do you still do podcasts? I know you used to be involved in podcasts. Yes. So I actually, this morning, we finally put on a new episode for the first time in July. Uh, we, I'd been on hiatus because I'd just been working on the show so much. And finally, things have calmed down enough that we, we put a new episode out. But I do a lot of uh, you know guest appearances on stuff. I've been on Corolla twice. And you know, and I did uh, uh, Brian Bishop, who's on his Ball Brian. Uh, he goes by. I did the one with him and... and uh, and Anderson, his uh, Film Vault podcast, which was a lot of fun. So I love doing stuff like that. That's why I'm here today. Now, what's your podcast called? My podcast is called High Confidence, Low Self-Esteem, which is what I believe it is the recipe for a comedian. And it's uh, myself, Danny Jollis, and Camilla Cleese, uh, John's daughter, uh, who are both hilariously funny comics. And, you know, and we just, we have a great time. And, you know, usually we have guests, but the last two episodes now we've just been just us, because it's just been so long that we want to kind of catch up. Well, that's good, though. And now, and now you have a website. Uh, yeah, so stevehofstetter.com, but no one can spell Hofstetter, so just picksteve.com will forward you right to it. Picksteve.com, yeah. Because mm -hmm. your name, because there's different, there's Hofstetler, there's, I mean, it, it is one of those weird names. Your security guard downstairs. Yeah, he was like, is that a hockey player? I'm like, no, he's a football player. He's a quarterback. It's, it's Ernesto, he's great, but he, yeah. he doesn't know something about sports. I, I, <laughs> yeah, well, no, but he knew it was a name he right. heard before. But that was spelled differently. Yeah, it was Hofstetler, although I, I was 11 when they won the Super Bowl in New York, and so he was my cousin that year. Exactly. And then he sucked and he was no longer my cousin. Exactly. And now what can they find on your website? Can they find your CDs and your albums and all this? Stuff? Where, where can they find Yeah, they can download a free copy of one of my albums on my website because I never want people to follow me unless they know my work. So download a free album, see if you like it. Uh, you can also go, I have, you know, 400 different clips on YouTube. A lot of them is the heckler stuff that I'm, you know, that's kind of what I've become known for. Uh, and they can, you know, buy the other albums. They can buy a, a t-shirt. I, I call my fans uh, retophiles. So they, I've red hair for anyone right. listening, and so otherwise that'd be weird to but say. Go, what the hell is that? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so they're retophiles. So you could buy a retophile shirt, and uh, you know, and just kind of be part of the conversation. And uh, so that's so okay. And the tweet, what, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, my my Twitter is just at Steve Hofstetter. And if you Google my name, Google will correct you if you don't know how to spell it. So and you can find every now and then I'll get someone from the industry be like, yeah, I was trying to get a hold of you. I'm like, what did you do to try? I'm exactly. so easy to find. And laughs. What's the last Twitter? Uh, laughs is just at laughs TV show. And it airs uh, in most markets. It airs uh, Saturday night, usually around midnight, uh, depending on the market. And then Sundays it airs and that's on Fox. And then Sundays it airs again on my net. Uh, anywhere from 9 p.m. to midnight, depending on the city. So, uh, but they, if they if you go to laughstvshow.com, you can find all the airing and and right. you know support live comedy. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. 
Thanks and, for having uh, me. Great. Now, people, you can follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. Also, if you go to my website, coopertalk.net, I have over 320 episodes up there. Uh, Stitcher, iTunes, Cooper Talk, one word for your uh, Android products. Uh, go to the Google Play Store, type in Cooper Talk. That's one word, and you'll get my app. Also, this Saturday, I'll be at, the, uh, I'll be at Improv Olympic West, the iOS, doing uh, Christine Blackburn's story worthy show i'll be telling a 10 minute story i'm not sure which one yet i've done two on her show so i'm going to figure that out so come out and watch that and uh that's about it so yeah so you people here's the deal email me cooper at coopertalk.net follow steve hostetler go watch laughs uh follow me on twitter like i said at coopertalk uh, at coopertalk and don't forget i'm steve cooper i'm only as hip as my guests don't forget drink your water eat your vegetables take your vitamins you guys have a great weekend don't drink and drive and make sure you have fun